Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. The following program is intended for immature audiences only. Don't think, just listen. From coast to coast, border to border, and around the world, you're going online with Bill Alexander. Good day, everyone. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and you're online with another edition of Bill Alexander here on Fayette TV Channel 77 and also on WMCK.FM. Well, I hope everything's going fine for you on this uh, Tuesday night or this uh, Thursday afternoon or this Sunday afternoon. Whatever is going well for you, hopefully everything is fine. Right now on the phone line, and I was mentioning this on the uh, on my Facebook post, I was watching a program on MeTV the other night called uh, Collector's Call. And our guest actually was on the second episode of that program. His name is Rick Goldschmidt. Rick, how are you doing this evening? (laughs) Good. So, Rick, how did you get on the TV program, Collector's Call? Well, um, I do a lot of television and radio things in regards to the books I write on Rankin Bass Productions. Okay. Um, Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass produced all the great holiday specials like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman. So at Christmas time, um, I do a lot of interviews and and so forth. And um, the producers of Collector's School saw one of the pieces that was done through ABC7 in Chicago um, on their digital platform. The interviewer came out and shot a Facebook Live of, of my house. Okay. And literally had like 2,000 people watching oh, it wow. as he was doing it. And uh, one of them happened to be one of the producers on the show. And he got in touch with me right away and wanted to shoot the pilot with me. And um, then they ended up shooting the pilot with a friend of mine little five-minute thing, and the the show sold, and I was the first episode that they actually shot. Okay. And and it, uh, we only scratched the surface, like they said <laughs> in the show. Um, I have at least, you know, 40 items we could talk in depth about, like we did on the show. Right. But, of, of course, for time, say... They had to put a couple of my items on the online version only, um, so they couldn't fit everything in. But it was fun, and I thought they did a great job, too. So how was it meeting Blair from Facts of Life? (laughs) She's great. You know, she's just a a regular person. She's, um, you know, not snobbish like her character on the Facts of Life. She's just a very uh, down-to-earth, um, actually very religious person, too. Um, so she's just really nice, really easy to work with, and and she is fascinated by, you know, the stories behind everything. Mm-hmm. And In fact, we, uh, we talked about my TV Guide collection on the online version, and she told the story about, you know, their TV Guide, um, when they were featured on the cover, the, the TV Guide people didn't tell any of them who the article would be about. You okay. know, they would interview everybody, but not tell them that you're going to be the feature. And she ended up being the feature in the article, so it was kind of a, a cool story to tell. Now, before I go into who you are, which you touched on very, very uh, lightly there, I had a TV TV guide collection when I was a kid. I had it. It lasted 10 years 
from 1979 to 1989. And my parents thought I was crazy for collecting them. And unfortunately, when I moved out of the house, they got rid of the TV guides. Is there any market for old TV guides? Yeah, there's always been a market ever since I started collecting. Um, Right around when I did get out of college, I would say around around 89, 90. Okay. I I found out there was a a place called TV Guide Specialists, and they were located in Macomb, Illinois, which I was actually a guest of last Christmas. It's just a small town, you know, downstate Illinois, but they used to sell TV guides, and even back then, you know, to get the Batman TV guide, it was like 30, 40 bucks for a a rough version of it. And um, they had the bound volumes that I talked about in my segment that I have. And even back then, you know, 1990, they were selling those for two, $300. And since then, they, they average about three to $400. So in other words, what you're telling me, I should have kept the TV guide collection and not invested in the Beanie Babies that I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, um, the more valuable ones are the ones that I have from... The 60s. Oh, okay. They had like the greatest photography on those covers. Um, even back into the 50s when the magazine started, and they would shoot, you know, a variety of beautiful color pictures. Some of them have been made into prints. You can find big prints that are framed and matted right. of those TV guide covers, and they're just amazing photographs to begin with. And then, you know, to feature Star Trek and Gomer Pyle and all the great old shows, you know, the the ones that are really great demand more money, like I Love Lucy and the Dick Van Dyke show and so forth. Now, what I wanted to talk to you about, which you are the historian for Rankin Bass, and as you said, they made all those classic TV programs in the... 1960s and early 70s and the one i think that really started them off would have been rudolph the red-nosed reindeer right right and they actually did did one be uh, shortly before that called return to Oz, but okay. rudolph turned out to be the big hit now just the one question i will have is that when you watch it today it still holds up how long did it take them to produce that program? Because that is stop animation. Yeah, it, it actually took about 18 months because uh, a one-hour program, which in this case, they filled most of the hour because three of the commercials were also animated by Rankin Bass. And that was the Norelco commercial, wasn't it? No, it was actually General Electric um, houseware products. Oh, okay. So they they had the uh, three of the elves promoting like irons and uh, clocks and and hair dryers and things like that. Okay. And they're really they're really cool commercials. The Norelco commercial, the Shaver commercial, that was a sort of a knockoff oh, of okay. the Rankin Bass. Yeah. Oh, see, I wouldn't have known that. And then they did a lot of other programming around the holidays um, with uh, Year Without Without a Santa Claus. You had Santa Claus is Coming to Town. You had a little drummer boy. I mean, they pretty much owned Christmas at one period of time. It was either them or Charles Schultz. But most likely it was Rankin Bass. Right, they really kind of cornered the market on uh, on the holidays, and back then, you know, Easter was big too, and they they did three Easter specials that you don't see on television very much anymore. Here comes Peter Cottontail is one of their greats, um, and the Easter Bunny is coming to town. Had Fred Astaire in it again. Yes, he playing and, in the Mailman. Yeah. Luker. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I have to watch the Easter shows every Easter, <laughs> but uh, the networks don't really show them anymore, which is sad. 
Do, um, do you have any idea why they're not showing him anymore? Because I know that um, some of the cable outlets are showing the Christmas programs, but you don't see the Easter programs. Well, maybe that'll change because the guy who did the marathon last Christmas on AMC, yes, he actually came from ABC Family. Okay, and I think I think when they did the marathon, it was pretty successful. So maybe he'll get the Easter ones and show them on AMC at Easter time. I don't know. I mean, that um, that would be really nice because, like you said, they are classics. And the other thing that's right. fascinating about them is that when Rankin Bass put their name to it, they had celebrities coming out of the woodwork to actually be a part of them. I mean, you had Mickey Rooney playing Santa Claus. You had Shirley Booth, which was Hazel. You had Fred Astaire. <laughs> I mean, we can go through a list of names, and these people wanted to be a part of it. Did they realize what they had when they made them in the 1960s, or was it just a fluke? Well, Arthur Rankin was a smart guy, and that was my um, contact from Rankin Bass. He was basically the CEO in charge of the whole production. Okay. And um, he was a big film buff. He was until his death. I mean, he loved classic movies. He loved all the great actors. And his father was an actor in Shirley Temple movies. Oh, I didn't his realize grandfather, that. Um, Harry Davenport, was in Gone with the Wind <laughs> and a lot of other movies, okay. too. So he knew these people, and his family was in vaudeville. So he really knew, like the talent that went behind all of these great performers. And he would just go to them and say, look, we're doing these family programs. This is going to introduce you to a completely different audience. Um, younger people will know you from this. Right. And he was right. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, right. exactly. Most uh, people now our age in, in their mid 50s or early 50s they know them they know these actors from these shows and pretty much nothing else right you know Burl, Burl Ives and Fred Astaire and Jimmy Durante that they're like known from the Rankin Bass specials and pretty much nothing else so uh, they were smart to do what they did and uh, the actors I interviewed a lot of them before they passed away, like Art Carney and Phyllis Stiller and, you know, people like that. And they they were just thrilled with how long they lived on and and, and so happy to be a part of the, the legacy. And they actually all loved my first book when it came out in 97, uh, is when The Enchanted World of Rankin Bass came out. So, I'm, and I'm going to ask you, because it just slips my mind, what did Phyllis Diller do for Rankin Bass? She was in Mad Monster Party, okay. which is uh, a great Halloween film. Um, I put it on the same level as Frank, you know, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Oh, okay. Those are the two. Those are the two movies I have to watch on Halloween if I, if, if you know, if I watch anything, and um, it just. She loved being in that movie because she got to sing a song and uh, she always talked about she rented a piano and and, uh, and stayed at the Beverly Hills Hotel and performed her song. <laughs> she just loved everything about it and it really captured her, her personality in the puppet and Boris Karloff was in that as well. Okay. I wrote a whole book about that movie because... Jack Davis designed it, and, and he was my friend that got me into Rankin Bass to begin with. Now, a great artist. Now, what about Art Carney? Now, what was he? What was he in? He was in uh, the Leprechaun's Christmas Gold. He played Blarney Killikalarney. Now, okay, which is a little leprechaun. Okay, now I remember and, uh, who he was. Okay, <laughs> now he loved he loved that special. Now, when when you when you think of Rankin Bass, like I said, you think of stop motion or stop animation. They did other animated stuff too that would be traditional animation, correct? 
Yeah, and actually, as a young kid, I watched a lot of it, and, you know, I would always see the Rankin-Bass logo at the end, and things started clicking, you know, like, I I grew up watching the Osmonds and the Jackson 5 show, and then the King Kong show, and, uh, you know, there's a variety of things they did, and then they did The Hobbit, they won a Peabody for that. I can remember kids at school who had read the books, like, you know, just waiting so anxiously for that to come on TV. And it looks totally different from, you know, the Rankin-Bass style, but they were very adventurous in entertainment. You know, they tried a lot of different things. They did The Last Unicorn, (laughs) which I remember Siskel and Ebert giving that a thumbs up. Right. Uh, both of them. And, uh, you know, they, they they were all over the map uh, in the world of entertainment. They even did live-action movies, um, starting with King Kong Escapes in 1968. And Linda Miller was in that movie. He's a friend of mine now. And uh, then they, they did a lot of movies for ABC's Friday Night Movie, like The Last Dinosaur. Yes. The Bermuda Depths. You know, things, all these things I remember seeing, but I, you know, they they had such a large body of work that when I did the first book and I put it all together, it was a very impressive resume. Now, how did you get interested in Rankin-Bass? Well, I, my family always watched the specials as... Okay. You know, when I was growing up, my mother always made sure, you know, we, we watched Rudolph and Santa Claus is Coming to Town and all the big ones. And then I kind of put it on the back burner um, for a while because I was a musician and an artist and, you know, I was uh, in a band in college and so forth. And I didn't think about Rankin Bass all that much until I got out of college and my degrees in illustration, and and I loved Jack Davis and Paul Coker. They're they're the most famous Mad Magazine artists. But Jack Davis did the movie posters for, you know, it's a mad, 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 mad world, and he did Time Magazine covers and all kinds of different uh, things, album covers. And I was talking to him a lot. You know, getting out of college, I wanted to do similar things with my art. And uh, then I realized, you know, he designed Mad Monster Party, and he designed the King Kong show, and he designed the Jackson 5 show. I was like, what happened to these two guys, (laughs) Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass, you know? To me, they're on the same level as Hanna-Barbera, Walt Disney, Chuck Jones, you know, all the great animators. What? Why don't they have a book out on them? And he was like, I still do work for them. Um, and then he told me to call Paul Coker, and I did. And I think Paul Coker gave me Arthur's number in Bermuda. Okay. And I called him up in Bermuda, and I said, you know, I love all those shows, and I'll, I'll do a book on them. And he was like, Send me two chapters. So I did two chapters, and he liked them, and and that's how we got together. <laughs> so how many books have you written so far on Rankin-Bass? Six now. Okay. Um, my sixth book is on Frosty the Snowman for his 50th this year. Okay. So it'll be coming out um, probably by the fall. So the and and I'm glad you brought up Frosty because again that's one of the animated ones that they did um because that's like I said before they owned Christmas they had Jimmy Durante. Now when they did the second two Frosties were they still Rankin Bass Productions or yeah yeah the, now you have to keep in mind that the second two are Frosty's Winter Wonderland with right. Andy Griffith. Yes. That's from 76. And then they did a feature film in Animagic, the puppet style, 
called Rudolph and Frosty's Christmas in July. Yes. Which which wasn't a big hit in the theaters because they released it in the summer, but it was a kind of a hit on television because they put it together as a 90-minute special okay. on ABC that year. So all of those were successful, but CBS airs that rotten <laughs> with, frosty return. With Jonathan Winters, yes. Yeah, and it's so <laughs> unwatchable, complete garbage. So who made that? that then? Our, well, I guess Bill Melendez, you know, who did all the Peanuts right. uh, cartoons, he was behind it, but I think by that point in his career, he wasn't, you know, he was far beyond his peak. Okay. And I don't know who he was working with or who came up with that whole thing, but I could literally only watch about a minute or two of it, and I had to turn it off. That's more I than I can watch get through. That. That's more than I can get yeah. through because, I mean, it is <laughs> downright bad. I mean, the animation styles know nothing like the original two. And it, right. it just it just just doesn't go there, and that's and that's the that's the sad thing about it. Um, yeah. So they 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 dealt with a lot of family programming. Did they venture into anything else um, like that would have been considered more of adult oriented, or was it all all based yeah. toward family? No, they they got into some some adult stuff and they did the Bushido Blade which was a samurai movie okay and it's pretty it's pretty violent and um, you know they they did some some feature films and things but not with the kind of budget you would want to do that kind of a thing and I think they suffered because of that those restrictions you know they got big stars to, uh, for those you know, they work with Richard Boone and Jack Palance and a bunch of big stars. In fact, I'm going to be appearing with one in a couple weeks, uh, Joan Van Ark. Oh, wow. She was in The Last the last Dinosaur. Um, so I might talk to her a little bit about her relationship with Rankin Bass because <laughs> I'm sure she might have a story or two to tell about it. But... um. You know, for the most part, the Arthur was never able to really get that kind of budget he wanted for feature films. Okay. Um, and that was where he was headed, but he never quite got there. Um, and then, in fact, he came back and did the, the King and I in animated form, which was released after my book around, I think it was 99. And um, it suffered because of a lot of different people's hands being in, involved, and it wasn't quite what they had hoped it would be. So they never quite got to the point where they made a big budget feature film. So when when you when you talk about Rankin Bass and you compared them to Disney and. Um, would you compare him to Sid and Marty Croft at the same time? Would you look at those? Oh things, yeah, th those type of things. Do you think, in the way entertainment is being done today, that they would still have a place in the entertainment lexicon that we're dealing with now, since we've gone so far to the internet, so far to on-demand stuff? That would they still be a big player in today's uh, entertainment industry? Well, um, if they had the same key players that they had in their organization today, if they were all still living, right, they would they would blow away <laughs> these people uh, now. Because here's here's what I talk about. I do presentations at you know animation festivals and conventions and comic cons and things, and at the root of of the Rankin Bass power let's say, is the writing. Okay. And Romeo Muller, who wrote most of them, was a genius. He he didn't write for kids. He wrote for everyone. Right. So you got these great morals and these wonderful characters, fully developed characters that 
everyone identifies with a Hermie the dentist, <laughs> and you know, Yukon Cornelius, and and all these characters he came up with, you know, the Heat yes. Miser and Snow Miser. The people identify with those characters. Now, today, I would call what they're doing throwaway garbage, you know. Oh. They they always talk about the box office, you yes. know. Oh, this made $100 million in the first weekend, and then like two weeks later, you don't hear anything else about that production. And and the problem is, here. here's the big difference between 1964 Rankin-Bass and, you know, 2019, let's say, Marvel, right. or something like that, is the fact that Let's let's say Disney. <laughs> that would be a better comparison okay. because Rankin Bass only hired experienced, you know, great talented people, and they would pay them, you know, what they could pay them. Right. You know, it, it, sometimes it would be Arthur would hand them a check for ten thousand dollars or whatever it was. He paid for great talent and he kept that talent now today what happens is disney will hire kids right out of college mm -hmm. people in another country and they'll pay them like ten dollars an hour and say you know this is your dream job at disney you'll you'll get better pay later on don't worry about it right and <laughs> What happens is you're getting mediocre talent, uh -huh. like right out of college, working on a computer, and then when they figure out they're being taken advantage of, they leave. And and that's why all the studios now look the same. All the CGI stuff looks the same, because people that worked on a Pixar film are over at DreamWorks because right. they got screwed at Pixar, right. and vice versa. So you got all these like mediocre people being passed around for minimum wage instead of, you know, a Romeo Muller or a Maury Laws who just died at age 95, probably one of the greatest composers for children and family entertainment uh -huh. that ever lived, worked for Rankin Bass. So, you know, that's the difference between the two. It, it's just, it comes down to talent and experience. Romeo Muller wrote for Jack Benny and Bob Hope and people like that before he started writing Rudolph. <laughs> you know, he, he, he had he had some, some major talent going for quite a few years before he hooked up with Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass. So you're not getting like some green-eared, you know, person right out of college that is writing for high school humor. Right. And and, 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 and and like you said, a lot of the stuff you're getting today is not the same caliber because they are no. they are required to put out so much more in such a short period of time that there's right. no way they're going to be able to create good quality entertainment and especially that's going to last 50 years like the Rankin-Bass stuff has. And that's why they go... That's why they go straight to the remakes, because we don't have time to come up with something a new idea. original, yeah. something great. Let's remake Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Let's remake Rudolph. Let's remake this. You know, it's just ridiculous. It's it's so sad what uh, Hollywood and entertainment it's has turned become. Into, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you're listening to Fayette TV Channel 77. Actually, you're watching Fayette TV Channel 77, and you're listening to WMCK.FM. On the line right now, we have uh, Rick Goldschmidt with me. Now, Rick, when we talk about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, when Rudolph was originally created, it was actually an ad campaign for Montgomery Wards. It right. came out in the 1930s, and then somebody got a hold of it and made a song out of it that Gene Autry made famous, so how did Rankin Bass even come up with the idea about telling a story about a um, a reindeer with a shiny nose? Well, here's here's the thing, um, and it's a long story because I had to write a whole book about the making of Rudolph. <laughs> but uh, Robert L. May, who came from my area, um, he actually lived in Evanston, and I 
I'm near Chicago in Oaklawn. Okay. Um, he wrote that little story book, and um, it became a big hit. And then Montgomery Wards gave him the rights to the character because they didn't want him anymore. So he allowed his brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, to write a song about the character. And that became a big hit. And, you know, years go by into the mid-early 60s, and Arthur Rankin met Johnny Marks at parties because they lived in New York and they lived near each other in brownstone buildings. And Arthur Rankin said, let's do a TV special. And he didn't really want to do it because he was making big bucks off the song. Right. Arthur convinced him to do it, and uh, actually the guy who who got the show on the air at NBC worked for Montgomery Ward prior. He was somehow in, in, involved with GE and, and NBC, so they got it on the air. The big difference in uh, the Rankin-Bass version, which is what everybody knows. Right. Everybody knows the Rankin-Bass version as Rudolph. When you think of Rudolph, you think of their version. Romeo Muller created all the other characters. Okay. He created, he created Yukon, the Bumble, the Island of Misfit Toys, you know, King Moonracer and Fireball. All these great characters. And he really deserves all the credit for the creation of of that universe, let's say. And then uh, Tony Peters designed all the characters, and he was a young artist that worked with Rankin Bass right from the beginning, like in the mid to late fifties. Okay, um, he was he was their artist. So you really got to give them a big uh, a big hand for for what they pulled off because I don't think it would have lasted. 55 years this year if it weren't for those two guys and you're you're probably right because i remember before uh, montgomery wards went out of business montgomery wards must must have got the marketing rights back again at least to use rudolph and then their final christmases they actually had rudolph in the stores but it wasn't the rank and bass rudolph it was the original rudolph and people were actually saying how can they say that they were the original creator from Rudolph and what, what we remember is what we saw on TV? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the um, the Robert L. May uh, family continued to do these sort of generic Rudolph for many years. I remember seeing uh, dolls by uh, that company, right. Steve, which is famous. And there were a lot of generic Rudolphs. In fact, until my book came out in 1997, there was nothing uh, merchandise-wise on the Rankin-Bass version. It was until 98 that Stuffins, the toy company, yes. got the idea from my book to start doing merchandise at CVS pharmacies. And then from there, it just kind of went berserk. <laughs> you know, wow. Now you go in any store... Uh, you can go in Hallmark or you can go in Menards. You're going to find Rudolph stuff now, from Rankin Bass. Now, on the program on Sunday night, um, Lisa Wetchel made a comment about the prototypes that you had of the snow globes that were from Rudolph. Right. Now, they were your creation, correct? Yeah, well, what happened was, um, again, at that time I was doing television news. Okay. And I was doing book signings, and I appeared on WGN, and the company that made those figurines, Inesco, saw me, and they called me up at the bookstore I was doing the signing at that day. Okay. And they said, we did a line of Rudolph figurines, and we want you to come in and take a look at them. They, they, uh, Inesco's in Itasca, Illinois, which isn't far from me. So I drove up there with my kids. My kids were babies at the time. And they had this, like, gallery of all these figurines with uh, a television playing Rudolph and 
a big little like restaurant in there and everything and I, I was pretty impressed with the figurines they looked the best i had seen okay and that was like 1999 so i said well look here's i know what the fans want and i'm an artist let me go home and do a bunch of designs which i did and i did them for that show rudolph uh, the year without a Santa Claus, Santa Claus is coming to town, Peter Cottontail. And they actually did a Peter Cottontail line, too, that I was sort of responsible for. So I gave them direction and I designed them. And then I even came back and talked to all their head personnel for a few years after that. And then they kind of migrated away from doing the Rudolph figurines. Okay. I don't think they do any anymore. Now, of of all the characters of that Rankin Bass has created, what is or what or what how many or whatever they may be more than one are the most popular characters that Rankin Bass created that people can remember other than say Rudolph. It's uh definitely the heat miser and snow miser. Okay. I, you know, I, I go out and I have masks of those characters on my, on my booth. Okay. And, you, you know, it could be a two-year-old or it could be an 80-year-old walks by my booth and they'll say, oh my God, there's the heat miser and there's the snow miser. So, Everybody knows those characters. So what do you think yeah. makes those characters resonate with the population out there today? Well, the songs were great. Everybody knows the songs. Yes. Uh, there's bands that cover those songs every year. I mean, there has to be at least a hundred covers <laughs> of that of those songs. And, that, and then you also have the fact that the characters are so over the top. You know, they're sort of boisterous characters, and they're fighting in the show. And everybody remembers that because of the way... Dick Sean and George Serving voiced them because they're very uh, <laughs> they're very different and uh, they 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 just remember them because of that. They, a lot of people don't even remember the name of the special, The Year Without a Santa Claus. They just say, "Oh, what was that one with the heat miser and snow no miser?" Yeah. So, why didn't Rankin Bass create a vehicle for just for those two characters? You know, they did so much by that time and, and, and into the 80s. They did Thundercats, too, which was a huge, yes. huge hit. Um, I think they got tired of um, remaking things, okay. you know. They didn't really want to do any more Rudolphs or Frosties or nothing by that time. They were just thinking, you know, let's try something different. Let's let's do this. Let's do that. They, and And the funny thing is, I'm the historian. I'm the one that went back and was like trying to find out the history. They were on to the next project. They didn't save anything. They, <laughs> it was always about what they were going to do next. It was never about let's look back at Rudolph and let's save these puppets and put them in a museum or anything like that. They were they just cared about what the next thing was. And that and that's kind of sad that it took until you came along to say, Hey, this stuff is worth collecting and worth, worth keeping and sharing it with another generation. I mean, thank goodness you came along. Cause if not, this stuff would have been lost. Well, Arthur couldn't appreciate it any more than he did. Um, he really appreciated what I was doing. Right. And then, um, well, the funny thing is in 97, when the book came out, the first book, he was still trying to get shows made, so he bought a bunch of the books to use as like a vehicle for selling his ideas. <laughs> so, like it was his resume, but he would bring it to the meeting. Here's what I've done, and here's what I can do, and let's do this. You right. know. So, I mean, up until almost till his death, he was still trying to get things launched. The last I heard from him 
he did a special in, I think it was 2001, called Santa Baby with Eartha Kitt and Vanessa Williams and a bunch of other okay. um, black actors and actresses for Fox. And right towards the last years of his life, he was bringing a musical production of that to the stage um, in Bermuda, and he was talking about that. So he never wanted to retire <laughs> He just loved it that much. And that, that that's just amazing. So how, the Rankin-Bass, how many years were they actually officially working in the together? entertainment industry? Yeah, together in the entertainment industry. Well, um, you could say their first production was The New Adventures of Pinocchio in 1960. Okay. And the last things they did were in 87. Um, as a as a partnership, so they had a pretty good, they had a, a good pretty run. good run there. Yeah. Now, one thing I want to ask you: They did the New Adventures of Pinocchio. Did they have an issue with Disney on that? No, okay. not at all, because um, it was strictly based off the original books. Okay. And the the reason that Arthur chose Pinocchio was he loved the Disney movie. And uh, he also loved The Wizard of Oz, so they did the tales of The Wizard of Oz. But those two things, because they were based on those books, you could get away with. Okay. Um, you know, I don't know if that's still true today. And, and today, it's like a sue-happy world, you know? Like, yeah. all these legality problems. Back then, it wasn't like that, you know? There were a lot of things that, like, look at, if you look at Mad Monster Party, all the monsters in there are all the universal monsters, but they didn't have any problems with universal, you know, when they made the movie. I'll be darned. Uh, I wonder if they'd have a problem making it today. They might, if they call them the exact same names and they make the likenesses look too close to okay. the likenesses. It, it all depends. You know, um, the legal rights today, they're so worried about them that I think there's some things that are being done illegally today, but people just don't challenge it and don't know it. Um, you know, there's a lot of examples in the Rankin-Bass world that I see that, um, you know, certain people are making money off of it that should not be, <laughs> you know. Oh yeah, uh, I, I can I can see that because they know that that's a money maker, and they'll and they'll try to skirt the law as long as they can before they get caught. Right, right. So, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so on the program on Sunday night, as we go back to Collector's Call, which is on MeTV, you have I mean your house is full of memorabilia. What right. what got got you started collecting all this stuff? Well, um, I'm a visual guy, okay. and you probably noticed there there was a contrast between the premiere episode, which was my friend Paul Lisnick, yes, and myself, because he's he, his show was more conservative and. He's a political al analysis for television, and he collects presidential hair and mm -hmm. things like yeah. that. Which is very his, unique his, to, to collect presidential hair. And his house <laughs> kind of resembled the presidential library to me, yes. um, in, a, in a way, with theater um, curtains and things like that. Now, if you look at my show, it's all color. It's all mm. visual. It's all art you know it's all arranged like like art and um, that's what i like about it because it inspires me to do my rankin bass books and my rankin bass artwork and you know the things that i do i just like looking at cool visual art it it, and, it was uh, interesting to me because when you were in the rooms there was so much going on in each room. You probably could have done one episode in each room of your house of how much stuff you actually have. Well, at the premiere party, when I left it, 
um, I talked to the producer again. It was a really cool guy named Mike. And uh, I gave him my card and I said, you know, if you want to come back for season two, you're welcome. And he said, I know, you've got a lot of stuff. <laughs> like, he, we put together lists. They said, make a list of ten items, and, and I did. And then I sent them all these pictures, and then they saw stuff in the pictures, and they were like, let's do that item. Let's do that item. Right. They changed the ten items about two or three times, So, and even once on the spot, too, so... There's a lot to choose from, and there's things I have that they don't even know about. Like, um, even uh, I have something more modern uh, that's unique from Toy Story 2. Okay. You know, I was friends with all the early Pixar people, and I asked the director, um, Andrew Stanton, who wrote the afterword in my Rudolph book, Uh I said, "In, in Toy Story 2, I loved all that woody television stuff oh yes and i said can i get a copy of the life magazine with woody and and uh, the horse yeah <laughs> and bullseye and jesse yeah bullseye yeah. yeah and they made me a print of that which they had to do off of the digital whatever artwork uh-huh. they had and then they all signed it so i think i got like a one-of-a-kind wow life magazine cover of uh, <laughs> of those two characters, so I mean, I love stuff like that, and and anything that's artistic and and unique, you know, that's what I collect. And I don't collect it because of the money part of it. I, yeah, you correct it because the money it, part of love. it kind of turns me off. Well, when they said that the, the every your collection, I'm thinking, how did they come up with that number? Of five hundred thousand dollars, and I'm looking at some of the stuff on the walls, and I'm going, "No, that's worth more than that." But again, like you said, you're not collecting it for the financial gain; you're collecting it for the 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 uh, the emotional connection that you have with it, which I think is even better, right. even better. Now, the lunchbox that you got traded uh-huh. was that really something you didn't have in your collection? Right. No, I didn't have that, and and you know the figurines that that I assisted with, I had multiples of of those okay. too. So it wasn't like it was a it was a win win for you, deal. is what it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I just I, again, I, it was just amazing with some of the stuff. Now, a lot some of the stuff you have. Are you looking into? Was it a lot of advertising stuff from the sixties? Um, because like the, the Kellogg's lunchbox and the stuff like that, do you, do you gravitate more to that type of thing or is it just anything in general? I love advertising, um, because again, like from, from the sixties and seventies, they hired people that like Ed Benedict did a lot of advertising art in the sixties and he's the one who designed the Flintstones and. Yogi Bear and all those yeah. early Hanna Barbera, but but then uh, one of the pieces they were going to feature on the show, and and I don't know why they decided against it. I have a painting from the McDonald's corporate headquarters that Dick Loker did of Ronald McDonald in 1970. Okay, and the story behind that is Ray Kroc wanted. Norman Rockwell, and Norman Rockwell, he couldn't get him. So he got Dick Loker, who's a famous editorial cartoonist and was the artist on the Dick Tracy comic strips oh, I didn't for a long that. time. Okay, Yeah. So I bought this painting at a, at a toy show a long time ago, and I called Dick Loker up and I said, I got this painting, what's the story? And he told me the story, and, and he drew a Dick Tracy for me. And, uh, you know, he's one of the artists I love, you know? Right. And he was involved in advertising. It's it's weird how all the great artists worked in advertising, too, over the years. So I think that's why I love it so much. Is, and we don't have any of those characters anymore. No, that's you know, a they shame. They should be doing, like, Speedy Elka-Seltzer and... 
Quisp oh, <laughs> the cereal. I loved Quisp. <laughs> I mean, all these characters were like so great. And what do we have now in in commercials and advertising? And not much. Of not anything. not much. I'm just surprised Mr. Clean's still around. To be honest with you. <laughs> and he's like a really bad CGI airbrush-looking character now. And, and the other one you have, which I had uh, the historian for um, uh, on my program by the name of Joe Woes a few weeks ago, who is the historian for Charlie of uh, Starkist Tuna fame. And, oh, uh, yeah. He's still, he's still out there, but again in CGI form. But again, just being able to use these characters because unfortunately a younger generation doesn't know that actually the advertising was sometimes more entertaining than the program you were watching. And again, yeah. it's just it's just a shame because you lose the jingles, you lose all that 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 recognition that you grew up with. Um, as you well, mentioned. it's funny. Yeah, you're right, and and it's and it's funny too. Um, I would say in the last 10 years, um, or maybe 15 years, yeah. there was this big um, sort of political push to squash, you know, Ronald McDonald and anything to do with advertising the kids. Right. Because they're saying, oh, that'll make them obese and this and that. And, and all of that's ridiculous because, you know, it's up to the parents, first of all. And it's, you know, if you eat things in moderation, you're not going to become obese, you know? Well, and that's so exactly right. They kind of ruined the whole thing that way. And same with children's television, you know, they let all these groups come in and say, you can't have violent cartoons and you got to be educational and, mm. and this and that. And that kind of ruined a lot of things too over the years. Yeah, the entertainment all the kids so shows. The the one the one uh, one mascot one uh, slogan whatever it is is the one that I'm upset with is they got rid of the original Burger King and they got this really creepy guy now and I don't understand what oh, the purpose of the new Burger King is because the little the the original one the animated cartoon I liked him. <laughs> yeah, this one now he was voiced just, by. Um, he was voiced by Alan Swift, who did all the voices of the monsters in Mad Monster oh, Party. Oh, I didn't realize that. And I love that character. I have a, a bunch of stuff of him. You know, I have a big, the big doll of him on uh -huh. my couch. and He was a great character. And, and you're right, they wrecked the whole thing by bringing in that weird-looking, <laughs> realistic game. It's just creepy. And, uh, he was really creepy, and even Ronald got creepy because they kept changing his costume right. and making him look really He almost looked, by the time they stopped using him, uh, sort of like that Pennywise and, character and, and, <laughs> that I they was, use today in those monsters. And, and the movie It, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. So do you have, do you have another book coming out on Rankin Bass? Yeah, the Frosty the Snowman okay. book, and I actually have um, another pro project that I can't talk about because if I do, it'll get it'll get canceled. But okay. it, it it relates to to Frosty too, and everybody will know will see it, um, you know, at, at Christmas time. Okay, so. okay. It's a big year for Frosty. Well, let's that, put it that way. Well, as you said, it's his fiftieth anniversary, correct? Right, so right, and, and this is the year. funny thing. They don't even know this, but I talk about it in my book, but the company that owns Frosty Universal, yeah. they don't have a clue, um, and probably the, the the network that that runs it doesn't have a clue, but Frosty is the only special, whether it be Christmas or any special, that has aired 50 years on the same network. Which would be CBS, yeah. Right. All the other specials, you know, Charlie Brown changed from CBS to ABC. Rudolph went from NBC to CBS. <laughs> you know, all the different specials change networks except for Frost. I'll be darned. I didn't, I, and I, I probably <laughs> wouldn't have realized that either. 
And um, unfortunately, it's amazing how an hour goes by so quickly. Um, what, <laughs> and I'm going to ask you this now. When the new book comes out, would you mind coming back on the program so we can talk about Frosty? Oh, sure. And uh, we didn't mention you can get all the other books at, um, at miserbros.com. It's pretty much exclusive through our own website. And, okay. Uh, we named it Miser Bros, M-I-S-E-R-B-R-O-S, like the Heat Miser and Snow Miser, which were, again, the most famous characters that Rankin-Bass created. So, and before I let you go, so I realized, and I saw a post that you put on Sunday night, that not only were you on TV Sunday night, your daughter was on TV too? <laughs> yeah, she... I was waiting for that to come on because they filmed her in the operating room. Um, she's a veterinarian, um, and uh, Matt Geo Wild ran an eight-episode uh, series of, you know, operating room <laughs> pets, and she happened to be featured that same night. I would, I, I would love to talk to her about it because. I was I was watching part of that, and I didn't, and I unfortunately I didn't see your daughter because I was watching you. But I thought that was a very interesting concept of doing live animal hospitals, very similar to the way they do the live PD program on A and E, which I thought was quite interesting. You had a panel of two people sitting there talking about emergency room visits, and then you went to the doctors, <laughs> the, the the place to. I did see a pig getting born though. I saw pigs, a pig giving wow. birth, which was. More than I needed to see on a Sunday night, I'll just tell you that much. But... <laughs> well, my daughter posted a clip of, uh, she took off her phone of the TV Yeah, where she's doing the surgery, and I, I got a weak stomach when it comes to that kind of stuff, <laughs> but I saw her remove something out of a big dog. It, it might have been a tumor. I don't know what it was, okay. but I can't really watch that kind of thing, but. It amazes me that, you know, that she can do all that. And I guess to be a veterinarian, it's harder to be that than a, than a human doctor because you have to study all the different skeletal. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, you, and she's worked with tigers and snakes and all kinds of different animals. So it isn't just dogs and cats. <laughs> And again, it has to be a very rewarding line of work also, but, uh, yeah, I would think so. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to have her on the program to talk about the pro sure. to talk about it. So if you can arrange that, that'd be fantastic. Hey, Rick, I sure, really, uh, I really appreciate it tonight. I mean, this was great and I'm sure we could have gone on a uh, much longer, <laughs> especially about the TV program on Sunday night and more about Rankin Bass and everything that they've contributed it. And now you're doing the book on Frosty and then the other secret project that you're working on that we're not allowed to know about until the end of the year. <laughs> um, well, so. uh, we, can, we can talk about the Frosty and the secret project on the next show. Okay. And I'm also doing another television show that I can't really talk about right now until later in the year. Okay. So. We could talk about that, too. That would be fantastic. Rick, I really appreciate you taking time tonight to join me. And again, uh, congratulations on all your new success, <laughs> the program Sunday night, the books, and everything else you're working on. And it was great to finally talk to you. You and I have been on friends on Facebook for uh, a handful of years <laughs> now, so we finally actually uh, met up in uh, one, sh one way or another. And again, I appreciate it very much. Sure. Thanks for having me. Have a great night, Rick. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs> you too. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Rick Goldschmidt here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. Uh, interesting program. I hope you enjoyed it. We're going to have Rick back on here uh, in the near future as we talk about more of the stuff with Rankin Bass. I enjoy doing these types of program. Hey, I hear whistling. It must be time for me to leave. Anyway, folks, glad you can join us tonight here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. Don't forget you can check us out on Facebook at uh, Radio Bill Alexander, or you can watch us on Fayette TV Channel 77 and also hear us every 
Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday on WMCK.FM. I am out of here, everybody. You have a great night. We'll talk to you next time here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.